You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Next up on Destination Freedom. I think about the folks who work at the grocery stores, for example, or people who've been doing delivery or working in restaurants, um, people who do care in nursing homes, um, are some of our front line providers, um, people who are in first responder groups, uh, police officers, um, EMS. Those are people who, who can't stay home. Right. And um, in, in some situations, those populations are, um, are, are over, uh, the people of color are overrepresented in those professions um, and in those jobs. And so we are seeing the impact of that, I think, on the hospital side in terms of the disparities of people who've been admitted to the hospital. Welcome to Destination Freedom Black Radio Days podcast. I'm producer director, Danielle Betts. Black Radio Days brings you a special podcast. I'm proud to share with you a series of interviews with healthcare providers, COVID-19 survivors, and social justice warriors. We will continue to travel to Destination Freedom Black Radio Days. Up next, my interview with Dr. Sasha Zimmer. Dr. Zimmer is an infectious disease specialist in Aurora, Colorado, and Associate Dean for Diversity and Inclusion at CU Medical Center on the Anschutz Medical Campus. We're in the middle of a pandemic. We're in the middle of, middle of COVID-19, and a lot of people are dealing with it in all kinds of ways. Um, I have been blessed to be able to speak to a lot of healthcare providers who are on the front lines or bringing up the backside of the health being provided to our community. I'm honored to have with me today, who I think is one of the heroes in this, uh, not only because she's just an incredible person when it deals with diversity and inclusion, but also she's an infectious disease physician as well. She is Dr. Sasha Zimmer, uh, MD. She's Associate Dean of Education at uh, UC Health and also the Dean of Diversity and Inclusion at the Medical School. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks, Donnie. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thanks so much for being here. So let's just start right off. I want to talk first and foremost about there's kind of new developments and people are having a lot of talk about antibody testing and testing and that sort of thing. So before we get to what's been going on within the hospital itself, let's talk about this. Your thoughts on antibody testing. Sure. Um, that is a hot topic. Um, it's something that I think all of us in the infectious disease field and actually in all of medicine and in our communities are looking to, um, to help us understand this pandemic and how many people have been affected by it. 
Um, as you know, and, and all your listeners probably know, there was an extreme shortage of um, the PCR tests or the nasal swabs that they've been called um, early on in the pandemic. And a lot of people had symptoms that they thought might be COVID-19, but they didn't really know because they wouldn't weren't able to get access to testing. Um, early on, it was very limited to healthcare workers or people who were hospitalized. Um, and so some people who did okay and were able to, you know, shelter in place with their illness and kind of nurse themselves back to health didn't ever get a test. We think that those people who may have had mild disease or or even asymptomatic disease uh, probably mounted antibodies um, to the virus. And one way to know what percentage of our population has been infected by COVID-19 would be to have a reliable antibody test um, that could identify people who had been infected, whether they knew it or not. The importance of that is that it give us a sense of the percentage of the population that had been infected, um, and we'd be able to compare that to the number of people that we know have been hospitalized um, or have even died from, from the virus. Unfortunately, I think that one of the downsides to the testing um, in doing it widely is that a lot of us, myself included, want to know if we're antibody positive because it maybe reassures us that maybe we're protected in some way, that we aren't going to get the virus again. Um, and I think that's a place where we still have a lot to learn. We don't know what level of antibody is protective. We don't know for how long um, an antibody response would be protective. Right now, mostly what we know is that if you have antibodies to COVID-19, you've been infected with it, whether you knew it or not. Mm. There's also some concern out there about some of the tests that are on the market that might not be specific just for the coronavirus that we're seeing circulating. We're all talking a bunch about coronaviruses, um, and that really mostly relates to the pandemic virus. But there are other coronaviruses that we see, four of them that we usually see in our in our seasonal cold symptoms. Um, and, and some of these antibody tests are not as good um, at distinguishing between the pandemic coronavirus versus the regular ones. So, so I think it could cause some confusion. So I think a lot of the confusion, thank you so much for, for mentioning that, that there are four others that are, uh, could be identified as being part of the COVID family. Um, there, all these companies are rushing to get this antibody testing. And you, as you just mentioned, that a lot of them are not um, being able to give us a real complete picture of what uh, the testing should look like or what the results should look like. Uh, what, what should be the criteria for a company or for a test that to be administered to an individual or a company or to your hospital, what should be the criteria that you look for as a, as a physician whose uh, background is affected diseases? So personally, I'm, I'm waiting uh, to see some tests that are very, that are proven to be very specific. So specific for this particular coronavirus um, and that are able to give a report of the level of antibody. Um, that is uh, in the blood. And I don't use this, I won't be using this in a diagnostic way. Um, So nobody's going to come into the hospital and I'm going to say, I wonder if you have an antibody to the coronavirus. Where I think the antibody is going to be used in the future is going to be really from a public health perspective to say what percentage of people have been infected. For example, there's a, um, the University of Colorado hospital is uh, measuring antibody levels among some of the higher risk healthcare workers, people who have been really in the front lines, um, ICU team members, uh, emergency department team members, um, to see what the antibody response looks like in that group. 
in some ways that'll tell us um, were some of our healthcare workers exposed to the virus? Um, we know they're wearing uh, PPE and being protected, but did they somehow get it either from patient care or even from being a community member like you know you and I are? Um, the other place where I think it might be helpful for us is in looking at um, patients who might be donors uh, for convalescent plasma. So plasma is a part, a component of the blood that contains uh, antibodies. Um, and that are being studied in uh, treatment of patients who have COVID-19 um, to be uh, used to um, enhance their immune response to the virus. And again, this is being done in a, in a study fashion. We don't know um, how effective it is. Uh, most, of, um, most of the patients that have um, had COVID-19 and recovered uh, from it, we presume have antibodies. Um, we don't know what the, how those levels vary from person to person, um, and those are all things that we're studying and, and trying to understand better um, so that we can do the best to treat patients in the future. Now, a lot of uh, states are trying to figure out ways to reopen. Of course, uh, we are across the United States, and particularly here in Colorado. And one of the things that people are, are point to, or one of the places people point to, is South Korea. And the fact that they caught it early, they did mass, test, mass testing, and so on and so forth. Your thoughts on mass testing, will it get us where we need to be, where we can, quote, unquote, maybe come back to being open somewhat? I don't think we're ever going to be able to open uh, in the next year the way it should be. Um, but what do you think about mass testing? I have been speaking for it for so long, so I want to get the, the word right from from yeah, right from you yeah <laughs> I, I well i agree with you um donnie i think that if we had uh enough available tests and reagents um that we should be be doing it as as much as we can to understand um how many people are have the virus and are potentially asymptomatic so that they can be counseled um to stay home to stay home from where um, they might expose others um, and to take care of themselves. Um, I also think one of the reasons that this gets discussed as a, such an important part to reopening um, is the ability to rapidly control um, things. So we think about contact tracing and and also testing as a way to get the virus back under get the spread of the virus back under control once we loosen things up. Um, all of us, myself included, are you know, we're just itching to get back to the things that we usually enjoy doing and in some cases that we must do in order to kind of right. maintain the livelihood of our families, right? Um, and so everybody wants to be able to do that, but we have to be able to then reel things back in, and testing is a key component of that. We saw in the beginning of the pandemic when we didn't have enough tests that people um, were probably spreading the virus without even knowing it. Um, this virus is, is perfect in its uh, way of spreading by being transmissible and able to be causing disease in people before they even before the person who has it even knows they have symptoms. Um, and that's pretty pretty smart um, and very tricky in terms of the way that it can spread. So if I came down with coronavirus and was diagnosed, um, what you would want the tests for is to be able to test the people who had been around me um, that day. Um, and, and when I came down with symptoms, everybody who had been exposed to me, my family, um, maybe people who I worked with, um, if, if I was a healthcare provider and I wasn't wearing a mask, any patients that I had been seeing, you'd want to be able to test them right away and know if they were infected or not. Um, you'd want to also be able to tell folks who'd been exposed to me to stay home. And that's where the contact tracing um, part comes in. Right. Um, yeah. 
I think that's so important. I think that's it. That's why I mentioned South Korea as a country. That's what they did as well, too, to get out ahead of this. So we are behind the eight ball. So one of the things I want to speak to you about as well, too, is the fact that you wear several hats. Um, <laughs> one we want to talk about first is how do you feel that your staff and your colleagues are holding up um, just from treating um, people with COVID-19 or the after effects? And I'm talking about really the mental health of individuals. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm I'm incredibly proud um, to be able to serve in the health profession. Um and I have a tremendous amount of um, respect and pride for my colleagues um, across the health profession. So in in the nursing profession, um, in the respiratory therapists, all the team members in the hospital, the people who are um, bringing food to patients, people who are working in our environmental services, um, it really does feel like a team that's all in this together. Um, and everybody is totally committed to the care of the patients. And that has been... Um, more inspiring than ever. You know me, Donnie. I always feel good about um, the call to the profession of medicine and, and, yes. and the students and everybody inspire me all the time in this role. Um, but more than ever, uh, probably more than I've ever felt in my career, it's been a time where I felt like we were all one big team. I do watch carefully, though, and see um, in myself and in others when sometimes the sadness or the stress um, can um, can kind of wear on people and, and take their toll. Um, and I have been trying to call on my team to say, like, look, let's look out for one another. Sometimes we maybe need an extra break or a moment of encouragement. Um, there have been a lot of initiatives around um, support for healthcare providers. We definitely feel supported by um, the community. There have been a lot of celebrations. But, but in the trenches, um, one of the things that I watch the most and, and I think people are struggling with is um, the sadness that comes from our patients being alone. Um, mm, yes. As, as you know, the, um, the hospitals have put in place for patient safety and for family safety and for provider safety as well, a no visitor policy. Um, and for us, when we're caring for patients, um, it's been really difficult to see some of them very, very sick with no one at their bedside. In the usual day of the hospital, I'm accustomed to walking into the room and greeting everyone, greet the patient, greet their family. Sometimes, you know, there's children, um, and, and it can be a huge sense of support. And now when we walk into the room with all of our gowns and masks, um, patients are alone. Um, and the only people they have to rely on are the people who are caring for them. And I think that's been really tough. So I also want to give a shout out to the um, social workers and care managers and also the palliative care teams yes. um, that have been working so hard to make sure there are ways for families to communicate, you know, whether that's through the phone or an iPad um, or having a provider call them back and, and just chat with them about how their loved one is doing. Um, and that's been pretty um, inspiring and tough um, to see. I think all of us are looking forward to the day when, when family members can be there at the bedside again, um, providing that crucial support um, for their loved ones. Speaking with um, Sasha Zimmer, the MD professor 
Um, he's associate dean of education and associate dean of diversity and inclusion at the CU, and also um, on the Anschutz campus. And also, she um, takes care of the med school as well, too, as well as being an infectious disease uh, professional as well. So we're honored that we have her with us today. Would you take us through a day, your day? Sure. Um, I My days are, um, because I, as you mentioned, I, I wear a lot of different hats, and that's how I like it because I get a lot of variety in my day. Um, on a clinical day, when I'm when I'm taking care of patients, um, often previously before the pandemic started, I would usually go to my academic office and do some emails and maybe have a couple of meetings, talk to students, and then run over uh, from my office uh, on the campus over to the hospital, the university hospital. Um, during the pandemic, I mostly try not to mix my clinical world with my um, academic world. So I pretty much stay over in the hospital. And in the morning when we start out in the hospital, we usually go right to the room where the masks are being distributed. So every day we each get a mask um, that we get to wear uh, throughout the day. Um, And that's to keep us from spreading the virus if we're asymptomatic to one another and also to any patients that we see. Um, And that's a change to our routine. I will say one of my favorite parts of the morning, the folks who pass out the mask are really really cheerful. They always, um, you know, say thanks for what you do. And, and it makes you feel good about, um, participating in the, in the care of patients. Then I, um, round in the hospital, I go see some patients who don't have COVID. I see some patients who do have COVID. Um, sometimes the patients who have COVID, we're limiting the number of physicians who go into the room. And so if my colleagues are already seeing the patient for the day, I'll kind of huddle up with them and, and talk about how the patient is doing and give some advice, um, about, We'll, we'll give advice to one another about the next steps of treatment. A lot of times I'll say um, I have been one to go ahead and put on all of the gear because part for me, part of being a doctor is actually being able to talk face-to-face with people and examine them and, and be up close and personal. And um, I've been cautious to make sure that I'm not wasting the PPE by doing that because I know we need to preserve it for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, being a doctor... Um, feels most uh, authentic, I would say, uh, when I get to talk to them in person um, and examine them up close. And as always, I find a lot of inspiration from the stories um, that people people tell. It's harder to be yourself as a communicator uh, with a mask on, especially uh, with a mask now and gown and gloves and a plastic shield. Um, I'm somebody who expresses a lot with my um, with my whole face. Um, and so <laughs> I feel like if I can't show my whole face, the patient, sometimes they may not be able to um, receive all the care that I'm trying to provide. Mm. So I've learned, and I was talking to the medical students about that actually today. I, I try to practice communicating more with my eyes, make sure I'm smiling with my eyes so they can see me um, giving them care, even if they can't see the big smile of my mouth. Um, Perfect. So I, I also tool. work in Huh? Sorry, that's a powerful too. Uh, being able to communicate with your eyes, you know, as someone who's, yeah. who's been uh, performing most of my life, uh, that is one of the first things that we learn is how to use the entire body. And you were talking about using that with your patient. I think that's uh, very, very powerful. I'm sorry, to yeah. go ahead. Yeah, no, and I, I just want to say too. I mean, I wearing the. There's been a lot of discussion about: Are you afraid, or do you, you know, when I wear the the materials they give us, um, I feel safe. Um, And so I feel like it's okay for me to 
do my usual, give a little hug, give a little squeeze. Okay. Um, I'm wearing all this equipment that's keeping me safe from the virus, and I just want to make sure I can extend, um, you know, my whole self um, in the way that I, I think patients need right now, especially. Um, so I see, uh, you know, 20 or so uh, patients a day in the hospital, and I also usually um, get to work with a resident or a fellow who's training to be an infectious disease doctor, um, talk over their patients with them, and maybe do a little bit of teaching also. Um, and then I spend a lot of time writing notes, um, which okay. that's not different from, from the pandemic to my usual day. Right, um, not right. my favorite part, but um, also something uh, that I have to do. Yep. And on my days when I'm not in the hospital or seeing patients, I am working on trying to help the medical school adjust to these new times. You know, we are all virtual in terms of our curriculum right now. Um, and we're planning for our new students in the fall that have just been accepted to medical school. Uh, we're taking care of uh, students who've been out of the clinical, the hospitals for the last two months and are getting ready to go back. And so making sure that they have enough masks and gowns to go back as well. Um, so those are some of the administrative things that I work on. I've also been teaching an online class, um, and that's really fun. It's been focused on the virus, and I think because I'm an ID doctor, I get excited about it, and I've been teaching them about um, about the virus, both from a clinical perspective and a basic science perspective, but also I know an important topic is related to the social determinants of health and how this virus has really, and the pandemic has exposed more than ever um, some of the inequities that we know exist in healthcare um, because of, of structural racism or because of um, challenges um, that communities face, whether that's from a socioeconomic um, status or um, from an access to care um, type of issue. We know that there are patients who've been unable to shelter at home um, because they have jobs that require for them to be out. I think about the folks who work at the grocery stores, for example, or people who've been doing delivery or working in restaurants, um, people who do care in nursing homes, um, are some of our front line providers, um, people who are in first responder groups, uh, police officers, um, EMS. Those are people who, who can't stay home. Right. And um, in, in some situations, those populations are, um, are, are over, uh, the people of color are overrepresented in those professions um, and in those jobs. And so we are seeing the impact of that, I think, on the hospital side in terms of the disparities of people who've been admitted to the hospital. And I bet you brought up when you said the people, the first people you see, the people who hand out the masks and everything too, and people who do clean the hospital and so on and so forth, uh, primarily are probably people of color. You know, I had other people that I know since I'm on campus sometime, where well, I was on campus sometime. <laughs> um, and I know those people personally uh, that do yeah. that sort of, sort of thing. And so uh, that's why I want to bring up, and you brought it up already, the health inequities and and let's talk a little bit about the role uh, in the few minutes that we have left about telehealth and as we move forward uh, with the pandemic and beyond the pandemic, telehealth and working with people uh, of color and communities have been not as um, successful or has been able to because systemic racism, systemic um, poverty are still behind the eight ball. How do you see telehealth working in a positive way? Sometimes I think sometimes that maybe maybe too much emphasis is put on telehealth so that people are not able to access it or still left uncared for. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's a mixed, um, it's definitely a mixed story. On the one hand, I think about um, 
families who work all day long and can't get to the doctor because their job is from seven to seven and no doctor's office is open at eight o'clock in the evening, but telehealth might be able to give us an opportunity to have that person access um, their doctor's office during the middle of the day when they had a break, um, because they didn't have to drive across town or catch a bus or something. They could just log in and have that visit happen. Um, or maybe there would be expansion of evening hours. And I can see how communities that would have trouble getting to the doctor might benefit from having it. On the flip side of that, obviously, is um, our number of issues that might happen if there isn't access to good technology. So what if you don't have access to the internet um, in, in a way that's strong enough to make a televisit? Um, could we do a telephone visit uh, some of the time and then space out the need to do, um, you know, virtual video visits or schedule people to come in in person. So I think it's going to require, honestly, a mixed approach, um, and it's not at all or none. Um, it's hard on the provider side to also um, give the same care, but we're learning. We're learning new things about what do patients want from us from a televisit. Um, sometimes it's generational. You know, I know my parents uh, – might not enjoy a televisit as much as they would like an in-person visit where they got to sit down with their doctor. But I know young people, like my medical students, they prefer to just have a quick, you know, like a phone call and a video visit because they're technologically savvy and have access to it. And that would be a preferred method for them. And it might be easier and allow them to get and allow them to have more visits, be more compliant, for example. Um, so I think it, it could go both ways. And we need to continue to have uh, to think about both options. Um, I think we are going to do that. We're going to learn how to expand the platforms to be able to have um, more opportunities for people um, to try different ways of learning and, and, and engaging with the health professions. I worry sometimes about rural communities that might not have the same exactly. access um, to, tech, to technology if it isn't available for them. But on the flip side of that, I also think about, well, if they don't have to drive all the way here and I can have a virtual visit with somebody who's in a rural community, then that's great. They get access to um, subspecialty expertise that maybe isn't in their community at this time. Um, I think that that's a, a huge potential advantage. I think we can also do a lot with education um, from that way. And again, just like the telehealth, the technology for learning is also a two-edged sword. Um, it's one thing if you're, you know, my middle schooler and you've got, you know, dad sitting right next to you all day long on the laptop while you're doing the learning thing. But what about if there isn't somebody who can be at home while you're doing virtual learning? What does that child's experience look like? Um, I think Denver Public Schools has done a great job of getting computers and Chromebooks and things out to people to be able to do it. But I think not everybody, as we know, not everybody has the same resources at home um, to be able to engage with that virtual curriculum. So I think it will continue to exacerbate some of the challenges that we already know exist. And we're going to have to think about putting resources into um, community workers, people who participate by going into the community to um, do education or to um, help people get access to the technologies um, that they need. I'm glad you brought I it think up. About our, Sorry, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, I was just going to. I was going to say I, I think about immigrant communities too, yes, who especially people who are um, who are undocumented or um, um, maybe are concerned about um, their status. Uh, in some ways, if they could log into their healthcare system from the relative safety of their own home, 
then they might not they might be able to access care without risking um, their security. And so I think that could be beneficial, uh, but that will also be the community that maybe doesn't have the same access to the to the technology. So I think if you have access to the technology, it can be really beneficial um, for people who um, would ordinarily have a difficult time getting to the doctor. Um, there are some things that we do that we that we probably don't need to do all the time. Like we bring people in to measure their blood pressure <laughs> right. um, and see if they're how they're doing. Well, if I could set you up to have a blood pressure monitor at home, I could log in and look at it, and I could tell you how to adjust your medications by making a phone call, um, and that would be better than having you miss an appointment and have us not take care of it. Let me ask you, you think some of the things that you, we just spoke about, and that's telehealth and, and trying to level the playing field when it comes to health care, is now the time you think after this and doing this that we can hopefully get some of the policies changed within the government, within the hospital administration themselves that would lean towards this kind of help level this playing field? I mean, because now you're talking about, for example, the, the hospitals in Ward 1, which is a immigrant area, okay, that has a lot of immigrants there, a lot of Spanish-speaking, a lot of uh, people with Ethiopia and Eritrea and so on and so forth. Do you think now would be the time that the hospital and well as lobbying the state government to try to make sure that this sort of thing is more equal now? Yeah, I think we are at uh, a conceptual threshold moment, right? We're at that moment where everybody's attention is focused on how we're doing this. Yes. And this is an opportunity for us to leverage resources to make these changes and to put structures in place um, that support communities and support health. Um, Chronic disease management uh, needs some innovation Mm -hmm. around um, how to improve the care. Many things related to chronic disease management, like I mentioned, hypertension, diabetes, nutrition, are things that don't require an in-person visit to the doctor to be managed. Um, and this is an opportunity for us to look at the way resources out are allocated and change the models of, of care delivery. And that means that the reimbursement process also has to be changed. Mm-hmm. Um, the way our healthcare is set up system, if you want to call it a system, is set up is that um, billing of visits is what keeps the system going to be able to continue to provide care, to pay the nurses and doctors to care for people. And that's set on a, you know, a visit, um, a fee for service kind of model. And what we want to do is pay for people to be healthy. Um, So figure out a way uh, that if whatever the the way the dollars are spent that makes the community healthy, that's what we should be, how we should be allocating the resources. In some situations, that's going to be around education, not around visits in the clinic. Um, and certainly I, I think that I've been, again, very proud of the way um, our the doctors who work at, at CU Medicine and the school have, and, and, and UC Health and Denver Health and all the um, affiliates that contribute to our school and the education of our students have really pivoted very quickly um, to expand telehealth and to expand outreach programs and to start to um, study and innovate around these um, around these ideas. Um, and we just need to keep that going um, and not ignore um, the communities when um, this pandemic, you know, finally, hopefully uh, gets under it's control. Over. Beautiful. And we're going to have to end it there. I thank you so much for your time. Uh, but let me say this. I'm glad you brought up the billing and things like that. I think there need to be a difference kind of, like you said, a scale. 
not just a telehealth visit. It can't be as much as an in-person visit. So that's, that's my parting thought. (laughs) So I thank you so much, Dr. Zimmer, for uh, being with us today and sharing your knowledge and the information. I will reach out to you again with some other information that I'd like to get from you as well about what's going on in the healthcare field. Thank you again. And we'll talk to you real soon. Thank you so much, Donna. You take good care, friend. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. That concludes this episode of Destination Freedom Black Radio Days. Thank you for listening. Make sure you check us out at nocredits.com and pick up our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. iTunes, Radio Public, Spotify, etc. Follow us at Twitter at Donnie Betts, hashtag No Credits Production LLC, hashtag Black Radio Days, hashtag Destination Freedom Black Radio Days. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.